Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive into the world of one of the most widely discussed laws impacting sports, Title IX. Beginning with the discussion of the origins of the law, we'll then move to break down what Title IX actually says and discuss its legal elements before ending with a conversation about the myths and ethical implications the law presents. So, if you ever wondered why Title IX was passed in the first place, or questioned why this one-sentence law has had such a big impact on both male and female sports, then this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. Today, to help us break down our topic, we're going to be joined by a pair of special guests. Amanda Segris, who is an assistant professor and the program director of laws at Thomas More University in Northern Kentucky, and Chelsea Connor, who's an assistant professor of recreation and sport management at Coastal Carolina University in Conway, South Carolina. Now, both Chelsea and Amanda have been on past episodes of this podcast, so I'm not going to get into their CV. But just know that all three of us worked together at one time at Coastal Carolina University. Amanda has a background in law and has her law degree, so she can really come out and talk about Title IX from a legal standpoint. Chelsea, on the other hand, has a background in communication and gender studies, so she's going to be able to help us break down some of the myths that are out there about Title IX and what actually is occurring in the world today. But before we get to that, I just want to begin by talking about the origins of Title IX. So Amanda, maybe you can help us out there and talk a little bit about what was happening legally before Title IX was passed. All right, so to really introduce the topic of Title IX, I think it's important to talk about the fact that the Title IX comes from the Education Amendments of 1972, the Title IX we're talking about in this context. So because it's coming, it's important to know where it's coming from. And if it's coming from the Education Amendments of 1972, that clues us into the fact that, hey, this is a tool for educational settings. And so another protector of equal rights when we're talking a gender perspective is the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment includes the Equal Protection Clause. And so the Equal Protection Clause serves to make sure that no state actor can classify people and then treat them differently through law or policy based on classifications such as gender uh, without having a defensible reason to do so. And sometimes there's defensible reasons, right? So um, we'll classify, for example, the drinking age is 21. Mm -hmm. That's classifying people. It's treating people who are 21 and older differently under laws than people who are um, under the age of 21. But we have a defensible reason to do so when we say, oh, it's for health and safety and and order and yada, yada, yada. So uh, the 14th Amendment is a general protector right there of equal rights, which includes gender. Yeah, and one of the interesting things uh, about the 14th Amendment is that there actually were some gender equity lawsuits filed dealing with sport before Title IX, and they cited the 14th Amendment. And one specific one take from a book called Female Gladiator, Gender Law and Contact Sport in America by Dr. Sarah Fields is a lawsuit that was filed in 1971 in Connecticut by a girl who wanted to run cross-country and indoor track on the boys' team. And I pulled this section out specifically because I think it's really interesting what the judge ruled and what the judge said. The judge said in dealing with this case, quote, The present generation of male population has not become so decadent that boys will experience a thrill in defeating girls in running contests. It could well be that many boys would feel compelled to forego entering track events if they were required to compete with girls on their own teams or adversary teams. In a world of sports, there is ever present as a challenge the psychology to win. 
With boys vying with girls in cross-country running and indoor track, the challenge to win and the glory of achievement, at least for many boys, would lose incentive and become nullified. Athletic competition builds characters in our boys. We do not need that kind of character in our girls, the women of tomorrow. End quote. So I like that little excerpt because it really highlights back before Title IX went in place what the attitude was towards females in sports by many people in decision-making positions. And so while the 14th Amendment oftentimes we say is the, the teeth behind Title IX, it obviously was necessary to start to move into greater equality towards women because even the 14th Amendment in 1970s wasn't enough to provide access of females into high school and college sports. So with that being said, in 1972, Congress passed Title IX of the Education Act, as Amanda said, and the law said specifically, quote, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. And the law was very simple. That was the entire law. Now, the goal of that law was not to establish equality on the playing field. It was really set out to establish equality in the classroom and to provide opportunities to females in class where they were oftentimes being denied admittance into colleges or access into certain programs because of their gender. In fact, the only discussion that actually came up while the law was being debated in Congress was a single question where a congressman asked, how will this affect sports? And the response was, it won't. But as we know, that's not the case. In fact, we primarily see this as a law that's affecting sports, though we also now see it tied to other things like sexual harassment. But talking about the sports side first, the sports side, actually, there was a lot of dispute about should it apply to sports, how will it apply, and the Office of Civil Rights actually came out with a number of interpretations to make sure that it was applied and applied in a correct manner. And in those interpretations, they laid out three things that must be in place at all institutions in order for a school to be in compliance with Title IX. These are three things that you must have. So you must have equal scholarships. Now, it's important to point out here, when we talk about equal scholarships or equal anything, we're not talking about comparing one boy's or one men's team to a girl's or a women's team. We're talking about adding up all of the opportunities or all of the scholarships for all the men's programs and adding up all of the scholarships for the females' programs and seeing that they're equal. So we're not comparing men's football scholarships to women's basketball scholarships. We're not even comparing men's basketball scholarships to women's basketball scholarships. We're comparing every scholarship that a male has to every scholarship that a female has, and is that total number equal? So you must have equal scholarships. The second thing that you must have is the general athletic program components must be equal. What does that mean? There's a list of items that the interpretation goes on to talk about that we have to have equal access to or equality for our male and female teams. For example, coaches' salaries have to be equal. Again, it's not a single coach to a single coach, but the summation of all male coaches, uh, all male team coaches, the summation of all female team coaches, those need to be the same. You have to have equal access to tutors. You have to have equal access to facilities. You have to have equal facilities in general. And it goes on and they talk about a number of components that have to be equal. The third item that you have to have that probably gets the most press is, quote, accommodations of students' athletic interests and abilities through the number and types of opportunities available. Now, that goes on, and there's even a further clarification to what we mean by that. And this is where we get what's called the three-prong test, where you have to have one of the following things in order to show that you are being compliant. So can you talk about how we can show that we're accommodating those interests? Yeah. So one of the ways that schools can show that they're in compliance with Title IX, and they have to show that they're in compliance with at least one of those three. And so the first can be that sport participation for females must be proportional to the number of women admitted to the school. And so if it's like 60-40, then you can say, well, 60% of our opportunities 
in athletics are for male, where 40% are for female, but that reflects the population breakdown of our student body. Often, though, it's interesting because trends lately have been that females are higher, more higher enrollment at institutions. And so that one actually isn't um, as easy as it sounds to be in compliance with. Um, The second way you can meet it is the school can show that they're continuously trying to expand the number of opportunities for whichever gender has less opportunity. And so what's interesting here, and this is a a big catch-all for schools. This is a good way for schools to say, look, we're working on it. We don't have the resources right now to just add another sport for females, but we have a plan in place where we're going to take our intramural field hockey team and we're going to turn that into uh, an actual NCAA sport in the next few years. So as long as they can show that they are trying to expand, and and that goes into some interpretation, right? And so they can show that we add sports as years go on. And third, the, the one you talked about is if they have interest in it. And so schools will like survey, like send out surveys. And, and I remember taking one in high school. Mm, and they, they say, if we added a, um, you know, women's stand volleyball team, would you be interested in playing? And so they're, they're taking a temperature of this and they're asking the student body directly. And they're saying, if we provide the resources to start a women's lacrosse team, Will we have enough people mm-hmm. that are interested? And maybe they won't even ask specific about about just lacrosse. Maybe they'll say, you know, do you feel you have enough opportunities here? Would you play in a, on a sport team that we don't offer currently? What would that be? And so they save that data and they can show, look, if every single female at the school said, no, thanks, I don't want to play sports, then they wouldn't have to offer any female yeah. athletics. So you have to prove that to the Department of Education if this if you were ever questioned on this. But it goes back to your point of like, how much teeth does this actually have and what's the repercussions for it? And and you can lose funding, but I don't think funding's ever actually been taken from anybody. It's normally just them saying, hey, get your act together and add a sport in the next few years or survey the students and, and, and see and just kind of correct it. Yeah. So the interesting thing is with those three prongs, the first one having proportional numbers makes sense because that in general, that's what we normally think of as equal. Well, if there's the same number of opportunities for females as males or they're proportional to the population of school, then we're okay. The second one, the history of expansion, the reason that that was initially put into place was because athletic departments argued, well, wait, we're going from having either no female sports or just having a few operating under a different classification because female sports weren't initially within the NCA. How how we how do you expect us to have the exact same proportion? So the Office of Civil Rights said, well, we don't expect you to be able to have it right away. So as long as you're working towards, as long as you're adding a sport every once in a while, comes out you need about every three years, we'll say that you're in compliance with the idea being that if you continue to add enough female sports, eventually you'll have numbers that are proportional. That was the the thought behind it. The last one is, like you said, is the interesting one because very few schools will actually use that, at least at the collegiate level. Very few schools will say that, well, we're effectively accommodating the interests and abilities of the underrepresented sex. However, it's one that in theory should be pretty easy. Like you said, you just take a survey of people, you ask them if we're meeting your interests, if there's any other sports you want to play. But the problem is if one person from that underrepresented sex once a sand volleyball team and you don't have it, then all of a sudden you're thrown out of whack of being able to accommodate that. And this, uh, there's a very famous lawsuit. It was uh, University of Brown was sued for not being compliance. And they said, well, we're meeting the interest. And they went to great lengths to show that. And surveys were a part of it. They were asking incoming students. But the problem was a group of females wanted uh, a sport that wasn't being offered. And the school said, well, we're meeting your interest. We don't have to offer it. But by the fact that they wanted the sport, by definition, they weren't meeting the interest. So that last one gets really tough. What, right. what we see like at Coastal Carolina, Coastal Carolina, so I've been there, what, seven years now. My first year, they added a female sport because they weren't in compliance. So they added female lacrosse. They waited for another three or four years, then they added women's volleyball or sand volleyball, excuse me. So that's what a lot of schools will do. 
But in all honesty, most schools are just straight in violation of this of this last component that you need. They just don't have proportionality. They're not adding sports and they're not meeting the interest. Mm-hmm. But as you said, the repercussion is really for the Department of Education to take away federal funding. And they have never done that, nor do I think they will ever do that. So it's kind of like, like you said, Amanda, like, okay, like add a sport, like get your stuff in order, which is interesting because we're acknowledging that they're not compliance with the law. And if you actually go through and, and look at schools, there's some really big name schools, if you go through and check that aren't in compliance with these. Well, and keep in mind, they only have to be in compliance with one of the, yes. at least one of the problems. Yes. Yeah. Well, so it's, it, it can be kind of kind of loose if, we, if we're saying they're not in compliance. It's like, well, they might have an argument that they are through, especially through that second test, like working on it, you know. And so it, it, yeah. it is a very a loose interpretation, I think, to argue that like, hey, we're working towards it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is kind of all that we're hoping for anyway. So like if we're saying like what's, you know, at the end of the day, what's the big picture here? Well, what the court's really trying to say and what, what the legislature really tried to say with passing this is just like that, hey, just because it's in a school or educational setting, um, we don't want you to have to like check your rights at the door, your constitutional rights, you know. Yeah. And so not the the only way you can combat gender discrimination, but they just wanted to say, hey, we might need to address it in this setting a little bit more. And this is another way to, to, to do that. Yeah, exactly. Chelsea, can you maybe jump in here and talk a little bit about some of the other myths? Amanda and I have kind of been tackling the legal side and what it actually says and how it goes into place. But one of the the interesting things about Title IX, really from an ethical conversation, is there's all these myths out there about what Title IX does and the effect of Title IX. Can you maybe talk about what some of those myths are and we can maybe break those down and dispel them a little bit? Absolutely. And I think you both did a great job of, of explaining the legislative point of it. But I think it's also important that we situate Title IX where it came from, right? So it came right out of, you're talking about the civil rights movement, specifically the women's liberation movement, yes, right? So this is a time where a lot of women were gaining voice. They were um, sticking up for themselves, you know, wanting those equal rights specifically, not only in the classroom, but on the athletic field as well. So when we're talking about myths today. I think one of the biggest myths, and we've already covered it a little bit, is that Title IX just focuses on athletics, right? Yes. That's definitely not the case. And we know that as it covers um, a multitude of areas. Another big myth I think that is super contemporary is this idea that we don't need Title IX anymore. Yeah. And what we call that is this post-Title IX era, this idea that the fight's already been fought, we don't have anything else to do. Um, And that would be maybe something we can talk about at the end to wrap up a little bit, because Mm -hmm. I think that's also kind of this idea that, well, we do have equality, right? It exists. We have Title IX. It's it's fine. And we know that's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. But some of the big uh, Title IX myths is this idea that Title IX requires quotas. So this idea that, well, you hit X amount of women in a program, you're good to go. And I think that may come from that proportionality prong. Um, but what we know is Title IX was developed to get rid of quotas, right? It was meant to dispel, because back in the, back in the day, let's take a sport management program, for example, even though those, those didn't exist. If you hit 20% female in enrollment and you hit that 20%, that was it. It didn't matter who else enrolled in that program. If you hit that quota, that was it. So Title IX was meant to get rid of such quotas that oftentimes restricted certain genders uh, in certain arenas. But what it does require, we know, is that schools get equal participation. And when you read the law, Amanda, I think it's important to recognize that not once does it say woman or not once does it say man, right? It says on the basis of sex. So that goes back to the gender neutrality of the law, this idea that it's not just for women. Another big myth is that if you give women more opportunity, it's going to decline those opportunities or um, participation for men. And we know that's not true. If you look at the statistics, numbers are still growing in terms of male athletic participation. We're not seeing a drop in males participating in athletics. But what we do see is certain sports are indeed dropped. Yeah. Can Let's, let's talk about that one um, for a second more in depth, because I feel like this is like the number yeah. one myth, the number one belief. I mean, I grew up in Ohio, and when I was young, yeah. my, my parents went to Miami of Ohio, and Miami of Ohio dropped a ton of men's sports. And at the time, my parents were upset, and they dropped soccer, which I played, so I was upset because I couldn't – I mean, it just meant I wasn't going to go there. And the school comes out and says, well, we had to drop them for Title IX. 
And so Title IX became a scapegoat, and a lot of people were really upset about it. My first year at Coastal Carolina, before either of you were there, Coastal Carolina came out and they said, we're cutting the men's cross-country and track team. And they said they were doing it because of Title IX. And I went through and I looked at what are our numbers, looking at the application of what is actually happening with those tests that we talked about. And whether we had the team or not, we weren't going to be in compliance. So there's this belief that, well, Title IX is is resulting in men's losing opportunities, as you said, Chelsea, because we think that we have to cut sports to be in compliance. But I want to point out, nowhere did Amanda and I say that you have to drop sports, that you have to cut back opportunity to men. And that's actually, I feel like that goes against directly what the law was intended to do. It wasn't trying to cut back opportunity for men. It was just trying to make sure women had equal access to those opportunities. So let me interject and and say this then, because um, it's a very good point. And it's it's not in... so that so we call that manipulation of the proportionality prong, right? And mm-hmm. so you will see that. Now, just as you said, Drew, it is not in true keeping with the spirit of the law, like the intention behind the law. However, it is a way, it, I mean, if we're looking at the letter of the law yeah. here, it is a way for a school to say, I don't have the resources to add a female sport, so I'm going to have to cut a men's sport. And, and the NCAA has been careful with, recognizing like when sometimes they'll try to say, well, get rid of the women's volleyball team um, and we'll replace it with a, a cheerleading team. And that, that was a lawsuit actually. Yep. And the NCA said, well, what do we define as consider a sport for purposes of title nine and there's factors they look at there. So, I mean, we can manipulate this proportionality prong, but as you guys pointed out, and this is where it ties into the ethics. And that's, that's why this is an awesome conversation to have the law and ethics conversation all at once it is technically with the letter of the law look if a cop pulls me over going 26 and a 25 did i technically break the letter of the law yeah but is that within the spirit of the law what's the point of speed limits for safety and order and and this and that and so it's like you know technically Mm -hmm. it works um but that is not the intention and so i think that's where chelsea can speak more to like the ethics behind how institutions should actually implement this yeah, absolutely. Because in the beginning, we saw a lot of when Title IX was enacted, schools had, correct me if I'm wrong, three years to come into compliance. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it was in the late 70s, like 79 or 80, where they had three years, right, to comply. Um, a lot of people took those three years. So we saw a lot of wrestling and g- men's gymnastics being dropped because they needed to free up portions of the budget, essentially. Yes. And they needed to make that equal. So a lot of times the wrestling and gymnastics teams didn't have that many men on those teams, right? They don't carry a heavy roster, for example. Um, and they freed up a lot in terms of a budget, right? Because those sports, insurance-wise, they, they cost a little bit more. And then gymnastics, the facilities alone can cost a little yes. bit more. But what ended up happening was then people were blaming Title IX. And if you look at it from a today's perspective, it's interesting to see what sports are dropped, right? You talked about soccer, cross-country. You know, they're not taking away from the football team for example. And a lot of people blame Title IX instead of maybe blaming administration that can't properly equal out a budget. A lot of other people will blame football in terms of nobody wants to take money away from them because they have a heavy roster, right? Um, A heavy budget, all those types of things. So ethically, we're talking about people making decisions that can then disenfranchise other people and Title IX can oftentimes be blamed for that. Mm-hmm. And there's also a contract sport exception, too, where if there's not an equivalent yes. sport for the other gender, then um, the underrepresented gender is allowed to try out for that sport. So that's where you'll see um, females play football or something because there's not, a, there's not an yeah. equivalent. And so Title IX even tries to make concessions for that exact issue. But Chelsea, I love what you just said about it's a mismanagement by administration rather than like a flaw with the law itself. Yeah. And people just blame Title IX. It's easier. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an ignorance of people. And, and to be honest, it's administration playing into the ignorance. There was, when I was in college, um, Rutgers famously dropped a ton of programs, but the one that really got a lot of, of heat was they dropped their, um, their men's rowing program, who had the previous year just won a national championship. And they came out and said, well, we're doing this because we're not in compliance with Title IX. So 
one of the reasons that they actually did it is because they wanted to spend more money on another male sport. So we said that you have to have equal program components, meaning the amount of money that mm -hmm. you're spending in totality on these different things for male sports and female sports has to be equal. So they said, well, we we're not in compliance. That was basically it. But if you really look into the situation, what they did is they took the money that they saved from that team. The men's tennis team was cut as well. And a couple others, they took that money and they reinvested it into the football stadium because they wanted to have a bigger football facility. So instead of saying, well, right. we need to generate more money for both a female facility and a male facility to make sure they're balanced, they said, well, let's just cut these men's sports and take that money and budget it over to this other male sport. So it's, it's really a mismanagement. And unfortunately, and this is one of the reasons I like talking about Title IX, unfortunately, people don't understand the law well enough to understand what's happening. And it's allowing individuals in administrations oftentimes to do things that once we break them down, we really have to get at, is this ethical to do? Is it okay for us to cut the male sports and give all that money to football? Is it okay that we have this as a scapegoat and we're not truly transparent with the reason that we're doing something? And I think that that becomes a big question within it. And at least I haven't looked at the numbers this year, but one of the fastest growing sports in college athletics is still football. Football is growing at a rate that's faster than almost every other sport in college athletics. So to say that we are just hurt, that Title IX is just hurting these men's sports is so inaccurate when in fact administrations oftentimes make the decision about where the money wants to go and they want to put the money into football because they see that as a greater means to increase notorieties of your school, to bring donors in, and to make more money. Absolutely. And it then leads into this other myth mm -hmm. that men's football and basketball programs fund women's sports, yeah. right? So we're going to put more money into football because it funds everything else. And we all know that's not true, right? We know, I don't remember last year's statistics, was it 25 schools? that came out profiting from athletics? Yeah, the number, it's, it has to be right around that number. And this is one of the biggest things with college athletics in general yeah. that bugs me when I have conversations just with friends or, or people that I meet, and they always start talking about, well, all these colleges are making so much money from football. And you're like, yes, some schools like Ohio State, um, like Michigan, you know, like Alabama, are able to generate vast uh, profits Bama. from their from their football program, but that is by far the minority. The problem is, is we think of those schools first because those are the schools that get the most press because of success of their football programs. Or we think of a school like Duke of North Carolina with basketball, and we say, well, yeah, they're making so much money. But the majority of schools actually have a really high percentage of their operating budget coming straight from subsidization, meaning. The money is coming from the government or the university. So if you look at Coastal Carolina, for example, people make this argument, well, football and basketball make all this money. And there you might add in baseball. But 82% of the budget comes directly from the university. They're only making enough to operate 18% of their costs or to pay 18% of their costs. So this, this belief that, well, football should be exempt from Title IX or that, well, football and basketball shouldn't count is just wrong because these sports aren't generating the money that people think. And so they're not generating enough, oftentimes even to cover their own operating costs, but they're definitely not generating enough at majority of the colleges and universities across the country to pay also for women's sports. Exactly, right? So that, that myth, I think, uh, is something that still is heavily played as a narrative in regards to Title IX. And you're completely right. Many of these programs, they don't even fund themselves. Yeah, and that, that kind of leads into something else you, you mentioned that I would maybe like to spend some more time on if, of do we still need Title IX? Because I think a, a big narrative, and it, this isn't just a Title IX issue, you see this with other legal issues with things like the Voting Rights Act of, well, we're, we're in 2019 now. We have equality for everyone. We don't need this anymore. And I think that there's that same idea or belief around Title IX. Well, it's 2019 women have a ton of opportunities uh, to play college sports or to play high school sports. We don't even need this anymore. So Chelsea, can you maybe talk a little bit more about that myth and maybe what the reality is versus what uh, the belief is? Absolutely. And that comes from us, the millennials, I guess, because mm -hmm. we grew up in a world where we don't know a world without opportunities. Yeah. We don't know what that looks like. We don't understand what that feels like, but we're seeing it in other areas now. And I think coming out of this Me Too movement, Amanda mentioned it earlier, where Title IX we see now being used 
uh, in terms of sexual harassment, et cetera, it, it's coming back into the conversation. But from a sport perspective, we still see inferior treatment of female athletes in general. Those isn't necessarily a Title IX issue. Look what's happening with USA Women's Soccer right now. Yeah. Right. We still see an inferior treatment, both um, in their in their regard, equal pay, but also socially. There's still notions and ideas that women can't be athletes or what a woman athlete looks like. Right. Yes. So there's still a vast majority um, of inferior treatment across the board. We also still see low participation in STEM programs, which you mentioned earlier, Drew. Women just aren't uh, participating at the same level as men are in those types of programs. And again, that can be socially explained, uh, institutionally explained, et cetera. But going back to sport, we really see a decrease post Title IX in the amount of women in administrative and coaching positions, Mm -hmm. which blows my mind in a way, right? Because Title IX was meant to give more opportunities, specifically more opportunities to female athletes participating in sport. Well, who's going to coach them? Before Title IX, it was all women. 92% of women were coached by women. Now we're down to around 43 to 35% of female athletes being coached by women, which is a huge decrease and something that was meant to create more opportunity for women. In this space, we see a heavy decrease, which is fascinating. And I don't know if any of you want to jump in and maybe talk a little bit about that, but there's a multitude of reasons that research has suggested all the way from who's hiring these women to what it takes to be a coach and those social constructions around, well, how can a woman do all these things plus coach? There's a whole line of, of yeah. discussion, so, I think, surrounding that. So one of the interesting things in this uh, little history NCA um, in, in college sport in general, when college sports get started, really from the birth of college sports, we differentiate uh, male sports from female sports. Female sports stay much closer tied to the university in the idea of really amateur athletics. Male sports almost really from the start get jumped off and you have people being paid as as at the very beginning and all of this stuff and, and really going more into the commercial sector. But female sports stayed much closer tied to uh, the college and the university. And the idea was um, initially that we wanted to teach these women to be physically active and provide them these opportunities. It grew a lot uh, It grew a lot slower than male sports did. But you get up and you have different organization running it. As I said, you don't really have the NCA taking on women's sports. There's actually an agreement in place that they wouldn't have female sports uh, up through the 70s. So you have a you have diff- number of different organizations uh, governing female sports at the time. And one of the big things is the prestige of female athletics just wasn't as high as the prestige of male athletics. So your best coaches oftentimes would go and coach male sports or those individuals that thought they were the best would go and coach the male sport teams. Universities had basketball was a very popular sport. Um, Track and field was very popular. So they had those programs, but they were seen almost as second rate. They were seen as, well, this is just something that uh, our female population does, and they're not really worried about the same things we are, so we kind of keep them over to the side. And a lot of universities even had separate athletic departments to govern uh, female athletes back in the day. We still see that remnants of that in certain universities today where they call their female sport teams different names. Um, for example, you have like the Lady Vols. There's a, you yep. know, there's a classification of they are not the Tennessee Vols, they're the Lady Vols. Which seems innocent enough, but it really has roots in this this history of having a, a separate athletic department. But after you see Title IX pass, and after all these lawsuits and clarifications, you start to see, or you see, I think it was the AWIW at the time uh, was governing women's sports. They kind of dissolve. The NCAA takes yep. over female athletics, and you all of a sudden start to see all these uh, women who are administrative positions who are governing female athletics under this separate athletic department, they start to kind of get pushed out and we start to see more men in those roles. And as we increase the prestige of women's sports and all of a sudden there's given more um, press and more coverage to female athletes, all of a sudden men wanted to coach them because they recognize that, hey, I like coaching. I can get just as much or I can get at least some uh, recognition for doing this. And really, they come in and they just start to push out 
the female coaches. It's not that they were more qualified to coach the females, the coaches, it's not that the female coaches were necessarily bad at their jobs. They just get pushed out with this new inclusion of female sport under the NCA. So I feel like it's something that's not really talked about with Title IX. We talk about we've increased the participation rates for females and our numbers have done well, especially since 1972 to grow. And we've seen much more equality on the playing field. But if you look at these, this administration that Chelsea mentioned, it's not even close to being equal. Females are not really given the same opportunities. And there's even a stigma oftentimes um, among female athletes. Uh, I know in talking with a number of them, a lot of female athletes will say that they actually would prefer a male coach, really for no other reason than they always had male coaches. So it's a problem that doesn't even just start at the college level. It goes all the way back to youth sport and high school sport, not having enough opportunities for females even at that level. So if I can interject a little bit with some legal stuff here, too. Yeah. And um, and also, I think it's important. And Chelsea, you said this. There's there could be social explanations for some of it, especially with like the STEM stuff. And mm-hmm. listen, I'm no social yeah. psychologist, but to like, uh, you know, channel my inner Jordan Peterson. Um, he talked a lot about how female traits and male traits, like largely and, and not everybody, but largely and statistically, it shows that females might be more like emotional and caring. And so they might be better as a nurse rather than as wanting to be an engineer. And, and they're happier doing that. And, and that's not true of everybody, but it's also not overbroad when you, when you look at the statistics. So perhaps for some reasons, there's females who don't want to coach those high level mm-hmm. sports. Um, and, and like let, I was a practicing attorney and I said, nope, I'd rather teach because the work-life balance of that feels better for me. And I want to have a family and I prefer that. And so, so we can't, we can't let that get lost as a factor, but certainly we do see even just with salary, the difference between male and female coaches. And so there are other laws in place, just as the 14th amendments there mm-hmm. in title IX. there, we also have like equal pay acts of 1963. And um, you talked about women's soccer with that being a factor. We also have like a pregnancy discrimination act that was, uh, late 70s, I think. And mm-hmm. so those those things are there as well. And we're recognizing it and we're doing things other than just Title IX to help combat some of that. Um, and so I think it's important to realize that um, every time we have a law or a change in a law or a new application of a law, there are going to be repercussions or collateral damage that I don't think we necessarily predict or expect. But we can adjust accordingly to that. And, and listen, sometimes it's slow as molasses, how long it takes us to get there. But I think we're starting to take steps towards getting there, especially with like the women's national team um, doing so well and having so much success and in, in bringing awareness to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you bring up a good point, Amanda, when we talk about legislation, all those good things are there and put in place and how long it takes. And I think in sports specifically, it's so male dominated from a historical point of view to even now that it just takes forever when we're talking about things like gender equality in sport. Um, just because we legislate something doesn't mean the culture is going to change in, in a day, right? As soon as that law is passed. So some of these things just take time, but this idea that I think in a vast majority of administrations, I, I can't think of the statistic right off my head on the top of my head, but a vast majority of, programs, the only woman in an administrative role is that senior women's administrator, that SWA role. Yeah. So yeah, there, there are things I think that are helping it, but it's it just, it's slow. It's molasses. I think it's even an understatement, right? It just takes forever. Yeah, for sure. The unintended consequences are always going to be there, as Chelsea said, and Amanda said with, with passing any legislation. I mean, the fact that this is applied to sport is an unintended consequence of the law being passed. As I, as I said, that when the law was passed, they literally had one question about it in debate, how will this affect athletics? And they said it won't. So almost everything we're talking about here is an unintended consequence of Title IX. A lot of it has been a positive unintended consequence, I think most people would say, because it has increased opportunity for females on the athletic field in colleges and high school sport. But the the negative side is we do see a reduction in the women administrators. And part of that might be because because maybe some females uh, don't want those roles. That's always an argument with whenever you have discrimination questions about people will say, well, 
maybe they're not as inclined for those positions. Um, and, and some of it might be true. The the thing that I think we need to remember as, and especially with teaching future sport administrators, I think we all would agree uh, with, is that we just need to be providing the opportunities for individuals, in this case, that are females, exactly. that are underrepresented, to apply to those positions and, and mm-hmm. treat them exactly the same as we would a male. And I think, as Amanda said, there's all these other laws that are in place as well that help to do that. Uh, things like Title Seven, which is in place, which helps with discrimination and hiring, things like the 14th Amendment. Um, yeah. There is there is a chance that we might have a new constitutional amendment um, in the upcoming years, dealing with e- the Equal Rights Amendment, dealing with equal rights for females. But I think so often as sport managers, there's people in general, we just kind of default to some some ideology that's out there, some myth that's out there. And we might say, well, females don't want this position. As managers, we need to dispel that and we just need to say we need to give access to everyone to apply for this position we need to treat all those applicants the same and make sure we're giving each or judging each applicant fairly based on in in my opinion their merits what they've done and and potentially what they can do and that's exactly the the distinction you just made that i love it's like there's a difference in equal opportunity versus like equal outcome and we don't necessarily want nor can we control equal outcome, but equal opportunity, sure, that is, that's what this law intended to do originally, so, and, and, and still intends to do, and so, yes, I think that's the big picture to keep in mind. Absolutely, I think that's the takeaway. Yeah, so oftentimes, I think as a society, we focus on outcomes, which is, which is why, I'm, Chelsea, I'm glad you said, like, this is not a quota system, that's a myth that's entitled with Title IX, it's, it's, quota systems are myths that are, that are linked to a lot of laws, but we're not that that's an outcome. We're so trained as a society to look for outcomes in things. And and from an ethical standpoint, we we talk about there's this whole belief that as long as the outcome is fair, that's an ethical way of thinking. As long as the outcome is fair to everyone, as, all, as long as the outcome is right, then all the actions behind it are right. I think what we're all pointing to is while yes, the outcomes might be important, we also need to look at the process of what's going on in providing access to women and, and underrepresented individuals throughout the process is just as important as focusing on that outcome of quotas or just having an equal number. Because there might be underlying reasons that we don't even understand yet for why the outcome isn't equal. But all we can control as managers is that process point. On the 40th anniversary of Title IX, Billie Jean King, who we know for the Battle of the Sexes, great tennis mm-hmm. player, she also r- runs the Women's Sport Foundation. Mm-hmm was quoted as saying, you know, our goal right now is to get the equal op- equal opportunity up for girls and women in sport, right? Because they're the ones that are below. But what happens when we reach that equality? And she talks about how important it is to not only give girls more opportunity, but give boys more opportunity too. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't succeeded until everybody has as many opportunities as they can. So it's this idea that Title IX, that I don't think the fight will ever be won, essentially. It, it's constant, right? It's constantly creating more and more opportunities for both sexes. I like that point. It's Title IX is a nice law to have in place, and it's a great discussion because it does focus primarily on providing more opportunities to the underrepresented, which oftentimes is is females. But in general, it's, it, what kind of to, to what Billy Keen was saying, in general, we should be focused on providing opportunities to everyone, regardless of who you are. Which that extends past just Title IX and looking at uh, sex. It extends to looking at gender, as Amanda mentioned earlier, making sure that we have equal access to individuals who are transgender or the LGBTQIA plus community, making sure that socioeconomically that we're not taking away opportunities from people because we're overpricing sport. There's been a big conversation around uh, soccer and youth soccer, uh, and a lot of people argue that's why we're not succeeding at soccer in the national level, because we're making it too expensive. So Title IX is nice because it, it really hones in our attention because it's a specific law that's a lot of research has been done on. Um, but I think that that's kind of one of the core takeaways that I would argue that we need to, this is just a conversation, but we can apply it to any other classification of people. And we should always be looking to make sure that we're providing equal access and equal opportunity to individuals that want it. Are there any other kind of major takeaways that either of you would have to individuals either in the sport management field or looking to maybe get into the sport management field? So, Drew, you mentioned the only other thing that I took talking about is Title VII, um, Mm -hmm. but you talked about that. But so, yeah, just that there's that this is just one tool. And I guess my big takeaway here from just the legal perspective is that the law tries to be fair and equitable. And the law, we have to keep in mind, duh, is self-imposed. 
right? Yes. And so we as a, as a society and as a culture decide what we think is important. Like, hey, it's not cool to kill people. Maybe we should make that against the law and lock you up if you do it, you know? And so we decide as a group, and, and I always tell my students to think about the shows like Game of Thrones and Sons of Anarchy and Walking Dead. And when, when like the world ends, right, and then we start over from scratch, it's like, what's it look like? Well, we start to form groups and we start to impose laws and policies upon ourselves. Yeah. Well, why do we do that? Well, for safety and order, but also now that our world is pretty, pretty safe and pretty orderly, not totally by any means, and, and yeah. nor will it ever will be. Yeah. Um, okay. We try to have a lot of laws that are now focused on being fair and equitable. And I think Title IX is a perfect example of that. And so just to keep that big picture perspective and that there's other tools for it and that it's an ever-evolving thing. And like Chelsea made a great point, I don't think we're ever going to be done with Title IX. Um, and I think that's a good thing. And, and that's really what our, our Constitution is there to do is just afford us these rights and privileges and continually and perpetually protect them in whatever that means on the current society. Yeah. Chelsea, do you have anything? Yeah. I think from an ethical perspective, it's to make sure as a future sport manager that not only are you educated with the law and the components of Title IX, I think that's really important, obviously, but is to take a look outside of yourself and your program. I think anytime you're making any sort of ethical decision, it's important to look at the big picture. So I would always encourage students, sport managers, whoever, when we're talking about Title IX, is to look at the big picture and, and be able to put yourself in many different people's shoes. Not only can you put yourself in the football player's shoes, but maybe you can put yourself in the girls' volleyball or the women's volleyball player's shoes, right? So being able to recognize both of those sides, I think is super important. Yeah, and I think something that, and Amanda hit on this uh, way at the beginning, but something that's important to realize, too, for a sport manager, especially people obviously wanting to go and work in, in high schools or colleges, Title IX is a lot more than just application to people participating in sports. We, we talked about the, the base of getting more um, equal opportunity yeah. within educational programs. But as Amanda uh, mentioned, one of the big ways that we're seeing Title IX applied now in a lot of conversation about the application of Title IX is to things like sexual harassment and how exactly does this law apply to that context? And what do we as sport managers need to be aware of because of that? So I, I know at almost every institution now, we as faculty have to go through Title IX training. And the idea behind that is, again, to educate us in the law, but to, to teach us, well, wait, it's not just a sport thing. Like we have to be worried um, about discrimination based on things like sexual harassment going on in our classrooms. And we have to know what to look for, what to see, and then how do we report that if there is a potential incident that we notice. So I think that's another kind of important important point with that. I don't know, um, I don't know a ton about that application, so I don't know if either of you want to talk about that just a little bit more at the end here um, about how we're seeing it applied more to things like sexual harassment. Yeah, I mean, we're mandated reporters, right? And not only are we as faculty members mandated reporters, but those in coaching roles, administration roles, they're also mandated reporters. Yeah, and it's not just something that happens even necessarily on campus. And so it's, it's a, broad, it's a mm -hmm. broad net. And again, this is um, just as it was a, a new direction when we were taking it towards sports. This is a little bit of a new direction as we see different precedents and different situations and it being applied. And so, so some of it is it's, we're kind of going forward blindly, especially mm -hmm. with the LGBTQ community now um, being more of a, we have more of an awareness and acceptance for those things. And so um, as we should. And so some of it is we're still going into it and learning as we go. Mm -hmm. But the Department of Education is really on top of it of like, hey, get it together institutions because th this is important. And if it infringes upon a student's ability to have a fair opportunity to their education, then we are obligated to correct that. And, and that is what Title IX intended to do. And so as Chelsea said, we're mandated reporters, like, yeah, as we should be because we're in an educational setting and, and that's the purpose of it. Yeah, I, I think, it, so much of this has been brought to light. It, it hasn't been talked about in the context of sports, but as Chelsea mentioned like the, earlier, the Me Too movement. 
Um, I, I think especially within sports, there's there's oftentimes a stigma that sport is a masculine endeavor and, and that whatever happens within sport should stay in the locker room and we, we, should, we should separate sport from the rest of society and we treat sport different, which if those are societal's perceptions, it is what it is. But from an administrative and, and working standpoint, that's not the case. And I think so often that administrators within athletics have taken that mentality and just said, well, it's sports or boys will be boys. It's not a big deal. We don't have to worry or be concerned about that. But I think what the Me Too movement did uh, a lot of is it brought to light how pervasive these issues are of things like sexual harassment within the work within the workforce that applies within sport. And we need to be aware of that and not just be dismissive of that and be dismissive, kind of like the initial judge ruling that I read at the beginning of the podcast. He was pretty dismissive of the value of sport for female. I think so often we've been dismissive of uh, the actions of males within that environment. And we just say it's okay because it is, it's a locker room and we allow it, but that's not what the law says. And as administrators, we should always be looking to minimize our, our legal risk. And we should always be looking to operate in an ethical manner. And this is one of those areas as, as Amanda pointed to, like we're growing with the law. We're, we're seeing the interpretation. We are seeing how it's supposed to be applied. And we're, we're learning more about how we can create equity in, in a safe working environment for individuals. But in that, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't just apply to the students. It applies also to the administrators. It pro provides to professors at institutions. It applies very broadly to any institution and the individuals that are covered under it. Yeah. Absolutely. Or then yeah. you're Michigan State and look what they're dealing with, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or even, um, I mean, Ohio, Ohio State, much quieter, is going through a very, Ohio similar, State, yeah. very similar thing right now where there was uh, a doctor. The reason it's a lot quieter is because the individual in question committed suicide a number of years ago. But Ohio State just did an internal investigation. They found over a thousand male athletes were sexually assaulted by a team doctor, team physician. And this is where mm -hmm. it's not just the application to females. This applies to any gender, any sex, which brings in the LGBTQAI plus community. So we need to be aware of those things because we that, that was swept under the rug. That was in the 90s. So almost 30 years now, it's just been swept under the rug. And now it's finally coming to light. The Michigan State example from a couple years ago or two years ago. We need to bring those and be aware of those things. And we can't be dismissive of that as administrators. Yeah. And I think we're learning more and more about mental health and social well-being. And um, I think it's important to realize, like, what an effect this can have on people if they are sexually harassed or abused. Uh, it, it can really have devastating repercussions. And so, so then we say, okay, what laws do we have and what laws do we need to create and how do we need to apply these laws to, to protect that? And, and again, keep us safe and keep order mm -hmm. and make things fair and equitable. And so, yeah, it's definitely that, that portion of the bigger picture exists there too. Any, any closing thoughts um, from either of you um, on Tana? We've, we've kind of covered pretty wide breadth of it, but I think we've hit done well to hit on some of the key components, applications, some of the myths, and kind of deconstruct those and deal with some of the ethical questions that are involved as well. Is there anything that either of you can think that we might have missed out on? The only other thing I'd maybe mention more broadly that I say to my, my students often, my sport management students and my law students, is that people typically, and people also meaning like organizations, are not generally monsters. Now we do have some, you know, we'll have the Jerry Sandusky's and we will have some yeah. are monsters or, yeah. or, you know, racist or biased or chauvinist or, so we do, but largely I think we need to like not villainize. And I think title nine is a perfect example when, when we say like how much teeth does it really have? And, and I, it's not so much about always saying, ha ha, gotcha, you broke the law, you're horrible, let's ruin you. And it's more about like an awareness of, hey, how can we do better? Mm -hmm. and, and let's encourage and enforce and push, you know, institutions to do better and administrators to do better and people to expand their perspective. And, and so I think Title IX is like a really lovely law for that purpose, because that is, I think, the spirit of it. And that's kind of just how how life goes and culture goes, right? And so yeah. I think keeping that in mind is like a is an important perspective that it's not always that you know we don't want women to play sports or we don't care if you've been sexually harassed. It's not that. It's 
it's the resources can be limited and our awareness or understanding of things can not exist as you know and and so it's it's more of an evolving nature rather yeah. than a um i think intentional discrimination I think that's a great point. I mentioned this to to Chelsea in the past podcast that we did together. I think so much of it, so much of our lack of understanding as a society comes from a fear of wanting to ask questions because we don't want to be perceived as that villain that you kind of mentioned, Amanda. We don't like we're worried. Oh, if I if I show that I don't know this, maybe they'll think I'm a bad person. And I think what you said is so good to keep in mind. People, generally speaking, are good. Yes, there's some outliers within that, but generally people are good and we need to create an environment where people are not afraid to ask questions and they feel welcomed to seek out the answers without being vilified. And this was something that I think, again, the Me Too movement has done well to bring to light. A lot of people just didn't know what inappropriate behavior was. They, they knew the extreme inappropriate behavior, but they didn't know the degree to which there was inappropriate behavior. They didn't know you know, is it okay if I give a hug at work? You know, they just right. thought it was okay or they never asked, never had a conversation about it. I think what the Me Too movement has done well with is bringing a lot of this to light to where people feel or hopefully feel more comfortable asking questions and seeking out answers. And I, I think that's a big part of Title IX. It's not that, you know, I, I mentioned Coastal Carolina that they, that they cut or they tried to cut the uh, men's cross country and track team. I don't think Coastal Carolina was doing it to be bad, a bad organization. I think they were doing it for other reasons, but we so are quickly to vilify that then all of a sudden we don't want to be put in that vilify. So we just stay back and we don't seek out information and we just act like we know what's going on. We need to create an environment where people mm -hmm. feel comfortable asking questions and seeking out the answer and okay, kind of making mistakes. Uh, on the podcast Chelsea and I did about sexuality and sport, I, I said like, I don't know a lot about this topic. And it's just, it was a lot of ignorance on my part of not knowing different policies, not knowing uh, how individuals in, in that community are affected. But Chelsea was, did a great job of creating an environment where I felt comfortable asking her questions and seeking out answers. And now she didn't attack me or call me stupid for not knowing or, or call me out or say I was ignorant. She was able to educate me. And so now I know better. And so now I can hopefully take that and, and pass that on. And I think that that's important with Title IX, too, mm -hmm. that we seek to educate, not vilify people, as you said, Amanda. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I, I don't. Ex so being ignorant or having a lack of awareness doesn't necessarily excuse behavior, but mm -hmm. it, it might explain it. And I think there's an important right. distinction there. And so. So just like educating um, our future sport managers and our students on these topics and, and current managers and sport administrators is, is really the goal here. And, you know, like I've in a multi-million dollar contract negotiation been asked, hi, sweetheart, how do you play into this factor? Well, coming from a 65-year-old man, <laughs> he might think that's endearing. I'm like, uh, excuse me, I'm co-counsel. That's offensive, right? And yeah. so that's no. not, he's not a villain. It's just kind of a lack of awareness and, and we're evolving as a society. And, and so, yeah, I think that's a good um, underlying tone to keep in mind as, as we discuss these topics. I really like that idea of educate and not vilify. I think that's good. I, I really like that. Yeah, especially within these topics of ethics um, or, or, you know, we have ethics class. So many students, yeah. the ones that speak out oftentimes maybe are ones that are the loudest and the ones that have very strong opinions. And that can sometimes discourage other students from wanting to say anything because they don't want to be vilified or they don't want to be thought of maybe in line with that other person. But creating a, an environment, as we as we all have taught ethics and teach ethics, say, like create an environment where people are open to have discussion because that's the only way we can grow from these things. And that's what ethics is. It's a discussion about what is right, what is wrong, going through individual justification as kind of we have today with a couple of different topics. So, yeah. And that's what our country's founded on is like civil discourse. Like that's our democracy. So like even not just in a yep. context, in a general context, like, and, and some, I do this often. I'm like, I'm not even sure how I feel about this, but I'm going to say it and just throw it out there and let's talk about it, you know? Yeah. And then sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, I, I disagree with what I said, Yeah, but like get it out there, you know, in a civil, <laughs> in, in civil way. Yeah. I, I did that last year with Chelsea with the Urban Meyer situation. I, I texted her be like, this is what I feel about this. Am I, am I <laughs> wrong for thinking this? Yeah. Chelsea very politely said, well, I mean, most, you might be in the minority <laughs> in thinking that, but we were able to have a little bit of back and forth, but I, I felt... <laughs> 
I felt comfortable just going to her and being like, I know she's not going to judge me if I ask this question or if I make this comment to her. So mm-hmm. I, it's a it's a safe environment. I felt very comfortable, and she allowed that. And I think we should do that in the classroom too. I think mo- I think good professors try to do that, but students should try to take that outside the classroom as well and take that yeah. into their working environment yeah. so they can have conversations. Um, and, and it's very hard not to judge within that conversation, but try to create that environment. I think ethics in an ethics class is a great place to work on that. So with that being said, I just want to end by once again, thanking Amanda and Chelsea for joining us today to talk about title nine, the legal aspects of it, and also dispelling some of the myths and engaging in an ethical conversation about the impacts of the law and how we should go about handling it as future and current sport managers. If you have any questions on this topic or the topic of Title IX at all, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at The Sport Professor. Follow us to stay up to date when we post new episodes of the podcast or to see some behind the scenes for how we go about recording, editing, and producing this show. Until next time, though, I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Sport Professor Podcast. 